The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we better have prayer. I could go for four hours and not scratch the surface of what I want to cover, so... Y'all are in trouble. Somebody said good. That's almost as good as amen. Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that your word gives us light so that we can see light, so that we can properly interpret history, the things around us, the thoughts, feelings, emotions that we have. It is your word that is an absolute bedrock of certainty. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we might be strengthened by that study. Our confidence in your word might be strengthened, and our motivation to pursue spiritual excellence and spiritual maturity would be stimulated. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we'll start off with a letter. This is one of those nights where I just have a lot of different things to do, and who knows how unified anything will be. This is from uh, Jim Myers. Actually, it's two letters because Jim has a short letter, and with it there is a lengthier letter from uh, one of the African people that he worked with. He just returned to Kiev from uh, uh, Africa. He says, Dear friends, I'm back in Ukraine after nearly three weeks in Africa. This was the most productive trip yet as far as opportunity to teach and response to the word. After teaching some 60 hours in two weeks, I am just a wee bit tired, but not exhausted. It takes almost 36 hours to go from Kiev to Lusaka, Zambia, but the fact that it is in the same time zone means that there isn't the jet lag to deal with. I was a week in the big city and a week in the bush. The settings were quite different, but the objective was the same, to provide sound teaching to pastors and other leaders. I thank all of you who have prayed for me and who have supported the ministry so that I can take the Word of God to so many places. I have received the following letter, which I thought you might enjoy reading. The letter is from Jack C. Nakandu, who is the Central Africa Christian Educator, Education Coordinator, uh, Church of God World Missions. Dear Brother James, 
Choice Christian Greetings. I am thankful to God for the Jim Myers Ministries and the most needed and vital role you are playing in preparing and equipping church leaders for effective ministry and leadership. The just-ended Leaders Seminar in Lusaka, Zambia, that brought together 24 churches and ministries and an attendance of more than 300 people was a blessing. The seminar addressed the great need of many church leaders in Africa, the need for sound biblical teaching. There is a great need for leadership training and development in Africa. Many seminars have emphasized quantity and not quality. We thank God for your emphasis on godly quality leadership, a must for African churches and ministries. Many church leaders have not been exposed to sound biblical teachings and seminars they have attended. The just-ended seminar was with a difference. Leaders have been challenged to be men and women of the Word, men and women who are to grow deeper in the Word, The seminar received a tremendous positive response. The people were open and receptive to the word. I am assured that the next time another Jim Meyer seminar is held in Zambia, there will be many more people attending because of the testimony of those who attended. Church leaders cannot remain the same after such biblical teachings. My prayer is that not only in Zambia, but other leaders in countries surrounding Zambia will also benefit from the Lord's blessing through the sound, timely, and biblical teachings of Jim Meyer's. Finally, let me thank those who have stood together with Jim Myers Ministries and who have provided and continue to provide financial support. The seminars are costly, but their support is an investment in the business of God. I would love to meet and thank them in person for their love and goodness to God's work in Africa and other parts of the world. Those who support your ministry are playing a great part in transforming church leadership in Africa. So that's one of the reasons. Sometimes people say, well, Jim's supposed to be a missionary in Ukraine. What's he doing in Africa? What's he doing in, in uh, uh, Brazil? The thing is, Paul was supposed to be a missionary to the Gentiles, but you know, he went to Greece and Turkey and Rome. He went everywhere. It's wherever the Lord opens doors and gives you an opportunity to go and teach the Word. Okay. Last time we started looking at the doctrine of the leading of the Spirit, we're going to put a pause on that and go back to what we were talking about before we got into talking about the doctrine of the leading of the Spirit, which comes out of Hebrews chapter uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 5. So turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. I want to set things up again, and then I want to uh, set, give us a framework for discernment, which is what grows out of which is what grows out of this passage. And then we're going to look at some application. What we've been doing the last two or three weeks, as a matter of fact, or probably longer than that, is actually looking at application of the text. Unfortunately, we live in a world where application is often uh, reduced to being able to give three points or four points on you know, how to love your children or how to love your spouse Uh, how to be more effective at work or how to uh, live on the basis of your uh, own potential and and be encouraged and strengthened and have happiness and health and wealth and all those other things. But real application of the Word starts with what goes on in your head and in your thinking, and that is some of the toughest stuff to teach and to grasp. I mean, I have some of this material that I'm teaching and that you've heard me teach in other series before this and go over again and again related to thought and thinking is so foundational. And every time I go through this, it's like 
I'm like you're peeling an onion, and I go a little deeper into the subject, and it makes a little more sense to me, and I hope it makes a little more sense to you. But thought is foundational. I remember years ago when I think I was first, first time I really started digging into the whole subject of spiritual warfare, realizing that spiritual warfare isn't this charismatic thing that you're going out there and doing battle with the demons. Spiritual warfare has to do with what's going on in your head. Second Corinthians 9 says that we are uh, taking captive every thought for Christ. It is a battle. And that, uh, the warfare takes place related to taking every thought captive for Christ. Not just some thoughts, not just those sinful thoughts, but every thought. We have to learn to think and structure our thoughts biblically. And that is just a difficult thing for uh, most people to deal with. And so it's a lot easier to stay at home and watch uh, whatever that uh, show is about where, where everybody gets on and sings and, and the amateur hour now, and, uh, something like that, and have a little entertainment than to come to Bible class and have your brain cells fried for an hour. And if I could, I'd fry them for three hours tonight. So, And all of this kind of ties together because... I was talking about apologetics. I did it a little bit at the beginning of the last lesson, just tying some loose ends together. Before that, we talked about mysticism. We talked about rationalism. We talked about how uh, everybody comes out of this cesspool of worldly culture. And we all bring this baggage with us that somehow has been dressed up and perfumed to look like it's, it's acceptable to God and it's really good morality and all this other stuff. Of course, we know that Isaiah says that all of our works of righteousness are filthy rags, and that's that's a, a very mild euphemism for the way the Hebrew expresses it. And our, the best we do is just garbage in God's eyes, and we need to just have a complete overhaul of our whole thought process. But what happens is we all come out of this cesspool with all this baggage, all this intellectual baggage as well as as moral baggage and behavioral baggage and all this other stuff, and we have to learn to get rid of this. And the only thing that really cleanses it and gets it out of the way is just studying the Word, studying the Word, slogging our way through some of this uh, difficult stuff over and over and over again, and one day the light comes on. And on nights like this, it's not food for the babies. It's tough stuff. But those of you who have... A tough time with this, you have to realize just as you do when you're eating a meal and and you get a tough piece of meat that and your and your uh, teeth are bothering you or whatever. You need to just say, okay, I'm not going to eat that. I'm just going to eat the mashed potatoes. The more you hear it, the more you'll get some sense out of it. The more it will uh, mean something to you. It's it's not easy. It's not easy for anyone to think about to think about thinking. So let's just go back and remind you of a couple of things. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 5, we're dealing with the fact that these believers have become backslidden. They, have, they had reached a point where they, were, where they had advanced to spiritual maturity, and then due to sin, due to regression, due to a number of factors, they had, they had regressed. And so they have de deteriorated into what uh, the writer of Hebrews says is dull of hearing. Actually, they've become intellectually lazy. 
They've become complacent. They've become sluggards in the battle. And we're all in this spiritual battle. We're all in this warfare. And ultimately, it's a warfare of thought, thought, thought. And we live in a culture today where part of that baggage that we bring with us out of the cultural cesspool is you don't think, just feel. It's all about how good you feel. It's all about uh, it's all about those just the the, the sense the the appearance of things being well. It's not about substance at all. So we looked at the fact that that in in what puts pressure on us is a sin nature. And the sin nature not only pressures us in terms of overt sins, mental attitude sins, the kind of sins that we normally think about, but just the structure of our thinking. So I talked about that and how uh, in, in the, as the, we have these trends in our sin nature towards either immoral degeneracy or moral degeneracy. And that not only affects sin, but it also affects how you think. And so in terms of immoral degeneracy, that leads to, because it's an anti-authoritarianism, it leads to mysticism. That there's no external authority that's going to dictate everything to me. I, there's no external authority like the Word of God. It's all about how I feel. And so in its worst forms, in its worst forms, it's just raw subjectivism and people just doing whatever they want to on, on the spur of the moment. And they may plan to do X, Y, or Z, and then when the moment comes, they go do A, B, or C. And, and it's, it's, it's nothing more than a failure to be disciplined in your thought life. But then on the other extreme, when you go to moral degeneracy, you always have these, these rigid, artificial standards that are imposed, either morally or even intellectually, in the way this manifests itself, usually in the realm of, of thought, is some kind of external system of reason or logic. Now, we've got a great example of this. And the reason I want to go back and talk about this again is because many of you were here on, on Saturday night for the family night and watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Those of you who weren't, you have an assignment. That assignment is that you need to go rent the CD, DVD, and watch it. Because it's, it works at a lot of different levels. And I've never been uh, a C.S. Lewis junkie. There's a lot of folks who are. I knew a lot of guys in seminary. They had read everything. And he has some good things to say. And I want to talk about He's a great illustration of things that I have been talking about for the last month. And there are many things in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that relate uh, to what I have been saying and are very positive illustrations, but it's also uh, he also comes with a certain amount of negative baggage that I also want to talk about. Now, why do I want to do this? Okay, let's um, go back and think just just very briefly about what I set up for a, an apologetics thing. In terms of apologetics, apologetics is basically the um, Defense of Christianity. It comes from the Greek word apologia, and and First Peter three fifteen that we're to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. So, apologetics goes with witnessing. I remember one time sitting at a table with uh, several people, and I think Charlie Clough was uh, 
was the one that got some people's ire up a little bit. And he was talking about how important it was to understand how to, uh, how to think, how to think like a pagan, so that when you're presenting the gospel to them, you do not get sucked into their uh, logic traps, their, uh, uh, their way of thinking in order to try to win them over in the process of, uh, of, uh, of giving them the gospel. And there was one person there who made the comment, said, well, you don't need all that. You don't need to know anything like that. All you need to know is the gospel and just hit them with the gospel. And that was a simplistic way of expressing it. There are sometimes that's all you can do. But if you have a relationship with somebody and they are in the process of, of, uh, of being witnessed to by you and they have legitimate questions, then you have to be engaged in a dialogue with them. And that means you have to answer questions. You have to think about uh, the questions that they ask. You, you're engaged in a, uh, in a dialogue. Uh, almost, sometimes it can almost be like a debate. And to put in the good sense of, the, of, of that dialogue, they're really wrestling with objections that either bothered them or they've heard bother other people. And so they want honest answers because they don't want to just slip their brain into neutral and, uh, and just buy Christianity because, uh, you know, it made you feel warm and good and happy and successful, but that, that there is a solid rational basis for believing in Christianity or uh, something of that nature. So when we talk to an unbeliever, we're, we're concerned about this whole question of common ground. What is the common ground that we share with the believer and ultimate, with the unbeliever? Ultimately, the question that we're asking is, if we're making a truth claim, which is what you're doing, when you tell somebody that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Jesus claims to be the source of everything and the source of truth, then you're making a truth claim. And this person sitting there saying, okay, well, the Hindus make their truth claim, the Buddhists make their truth claim, Muslims make their truth claim, and the, everybody's got, and there's all these other philosophies out there. I can be Hegelian, existential, Platonic, Aristotelian. Why should I believe you? What is your basis and how do I, for, for truth, and how do I uh, validate this? How do I verify it? How do I, what is my ultimate criterion for determining what truth is? And so over the process of time, people have come up with some different answers. And as I pointed out last time, the first appeal that the unbeliever makes is to autonomous rationalism and logic. And then the believer gets sucked into that. But how the unbeliever views logic is not how the believer is going to view logic. I'm going to give you some illustrations of this a little later on. Uh, also, the unbeliever may appeal to historical evidence, where historical evidence becomes the ultimate determiner or criterion for what is true. And then the believer, there are apologetic strategies that appeal to empiricism. Then you have a... Uh, a third category that relates to uh, mysticism, and that's fideism, and that's the idea that there's there's no way to validate a religious claim. You just have this existential leap of faith. You just believe it because that's what gives meaning and purpose 
and validation of your life. And so that's called fideism from the Latin word faith. And what we would say is that, no, the ultimate court of appeal is revelation. Uh, we'll talk about this a lot more, and this comes out of Romans 1.19. Okay, I just did that to remind you, get this back in your head a minute. We'll come back to it in a minute. We have to remember this chart, and that is the difference that they're human viewpoint systems of knowledge. These human viewpoint systems are how do you ultimately know truth. And the top three, rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism, I always say these are in, used independently. And by independent, I mean it's independent from what the Word of God says. So the starting point is not in the Bible. You don't start with God as the creator God of the universe, holding, maintaining that creator-creature distinction. You start with something in creation. Right away, maybe you're beginning to see uh, what the issue is. You either start with reason, human reason, some rational principle, laws of logic, law of non-contradiction, that history, something like that, but you're starting with something in creation, not something in the creator. So at that level, you start having some methodological problems. And so those three systems of knowledge are set over against revelation. How do we know anything is true? Because God said it. We start with the Scripture. As a Christian, you can't start anywhere else without compromising your, uh, your, your, the integrity of your argument or the integrity of your defense. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. Let's say you're a criminal and you've got a dream team defense. You've got Johnny Cochran, you've got F. Lee Bailey, and you've got Percy Foreman. And this is your dream team defense. They, they're all dealing with the same evidence. I used this illustration three weeks ago. I'm trying to pull a lot of different strands together here. This is your dream team for defense, but they're, don't, they don't agree with each other. They're all dealing with the same evidence but they don't agree with how it should be presented. Now, if you follow one of them, let's say Johnny Cochran comes along, and he's our rationalist. He's going to take one approach. Then you have F. Lee Bailey, and he's going to come along, and he's the empiricist, and he's going to take another approach. Remember, they're still dealing with the same data. And then you've got this third guy, and that's... um, uh, Percy Foreman, and he's going to be the fideist. He's going to come with the same data, but he's going to come from a third strategy. That's what we're dealing with here is strategy as opposed to content because the content's going to be basically the same for all three. But see, all three of these, even if they win in front of the jury, doesn't mean that strategically they didn't commit some, some crucial errors in the process. And that's what I'm talking about. Isn't this fun? You know, everybody's sitting out there going, man, my brain, I worked all day today. I don't understand this. See, it's, it's strategy. It's, it's strategy and tactics. You've got the same, you know, if you put it in a military context, you're using the same weapons. You're using the same tanks, the same soldiers, the same, but it's how you use them. And remember the principle, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And even though it, you may end up uh, giving information to people and they trust Christ as their Savior as a result of it, 
it doesn't mean that it was done the best way, that, that you didn't somehow compromise the integrity of God and the integrity of revelation in the process. So we're trying to learn a little bit about uh, this whole thing called apologetics, because that's basically what the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was. That's what C.S. Lewis is generally known for. Uh, his books, Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, Miracles, uh, screw tape letters, some of these are apologetic. They, they focus on evidences for the Christian faith. So I want to talk about those things. Now, let's go back to Hebrews. Everybody sees a sigh of relief. Somehow we, we get real comfortable dealing with the text. It's when we start applying the text to how we think that things get kind of muddy and and difficult and hard to figure out. Hebrews 5.11, writer says, of whom that is of Melchizedek, we have much to say and hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. We've been talking about the dynamics of what makes somebody dull of hearing. For though, he says, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now let's look at this a little bit. I don't, I'm not going to deal with all the exegesis in this passage. There's a lot in that first clause. By this time you ought to be teachers. But I want to look at that second clause. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And that word for first principles is the Greek word stoikeion here. The basic parts, the rudiments, the elements are the foundational components of something. What we might call the ABCs of Christianity, the building blocks, the uh, separate doctrines of, of Christianity. Now, while we're looking at this passage, I want you to see where it goes. It goes to verse 1 of chapter 6, which I don't have a slide on this. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Now, if you've been with me through this study, these first five chapters, and we've been looking at this, some of you are going, this is elementary yeah, it is. See, we've so lowered the bar of expectation in terms of what we can learn from the Bible and what it teaches us about every dimension of life and thought that all of a sudden when we get to this verse, we realize, and people are generally uncomfortable with this, but okay, then they just kind of move it aside because they don't want to think about it. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is there is such a profound level of teaching that goes beyond basic doctrine of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, that, that we need to pursue that. We need to move on, get out of first grade material and second grade material. Let's get to junior high and high school material. And what we're covering some tonight is truly that. This is the m real meat of the word. This isn't just that milk that most people are used to. And even a lot of stuff we cover in here is considered pretty basic. It's just that we've got such a a culture of biblical illiterates today and thought and intellectual illiterates today that when you start thinking talking about some of the really deep implications of the Word of God, people just can't follow you anymore. 
And it's, it's tragic because there's some real significant stuff here that the writer of Hebrews expects us to be able to, expects us to be able to, to handle. Now, in our verse here in Hebrews 5.12, he uses this word stoicheion for the basic parts, the rudiments, the elements, or components of something. And he contrasts this in the context with the elementary principles of Christ in six one. Now just hold your place there in Hebrews six, Hebrews five rather, and turn with me back to Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter two. And let's go to chapter two verse eight. Colossians 2.8. And this is a warning from the Apostle Paul to the Colossian believers. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. What he says is you have to be careful that you don't get deceived through false philosophical systems of thought and get distracted from what the truth of God's Word is. Now, that's what I'm talking about here. That's why thought is so important, because ultimately, when you get down to it, to use the fancy uh, philosophical term for how do we know what's true and how do we know that we know, it's epistemology. And I've said this again and again, we live in an era of epistemological crisis. That's why the charismatics are so popular, is because... They're, base, they're basing their knowledge of what truth is on their emotion, on some experience that they have with the Holy Spirit, and this then becomes the validation for truth, not what the Word of God says, but what their liver quiver says, what their inner vibrations say. Uh, they have a they, they would know it if you hit them in the face with it. They have an epistemological problem. And their epistemological problem is that their foundation for their thought doesn't come from the Word of God. It's coming from mysticism, but they're wrapping it up and they're cloaking it in, in biblical verbiage. And this just, this really, this, this is what deceives so many people and gets so many Christians off center. You've got all kinds of philosophies in the ancient world. In Paul's time, you had you still had Aristotelian and Platonism, but you also had the Epicureans and the Stoics. Today we get the Darwinians, we get the uh, sociologists who uh, give us all the, uh, that, that Christianity, all religions are just sociological phenomena. And then you get the Freudians and their descendants that everybody's problem is really psychological and all regeneration is, is some sort of psychological uh, phenomenon. And that if you have problems in your life, you don't need to go to that pastor anymore. Uh, he may he may t- t- teach you some things about God, but if you really want to so- really want to solve the problems in your life, you have to go to a psychologist. You have to go to a, some kind some person who is trained in psychology. And so many seminary students and pastors get distracted by that because they really want to help people, but they don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Their starting point epistemologically is never totally the Word of God. They compromise. They have a foot in both camps. And this happens in in lots of different areas. So Paul says, Lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit 
according to the tradition of men. So you have various human viewpoint systems, and that's what I've talked about. You have human viewpoint systems of rationalism. You have human viewpoint systems of empiricism. You have human viewpoint systems of mysticism. And these traditions can deceive you. And it goes on and says, according to the basic principles of the world. Okay, the basic principles of the world, the Greek word there is cosmos, and the basic principles of the world there are the ABCs of human viewpoint thinking. Now, lest we forget Romans 12.2, we're not to be conformed to the world. We're to be transformed by the renovation of our thinking. That means we have to think about our thinking. We don't just sit out here and emote and feel good about Jesus and, and the fact that I'm going to go to heaven, but that after I'm saved, there's a battle to be won and there's a an objective to be accomplished. And see, that's one of the interesting things that, that it, for those of you who saw The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is after Aslan is, is killed and then he comes back to life, what does he do? He goes into the battle because... The issue, things don't end with coming to Christ and salvation. There's a battle. That's why the kids, like Peter was given the shield and the sword, and they're giving these other tools. Those represent the basic spiritual skills to get by in the battle. And so they have to go on. They have to go through the battle, and the battle doesn't end just there with the story, but the battle goes on and on and on because there's other uh, other monsters and other uh, Bad, uh, enemies that need to be defeated and that's the same thing in the Christian life it goes on and on and on and on and we have these enemies to defeat and the worst ones are the ones that hang around in our thought from before we were saved so Paul says beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and the word that's used there for basic principles of the world is this word stoicheion and what it's talking about is the cosmic system has its own set of ABCs and the, its set of ABCs are basic principles for how to live life and how to know things uh, is at odds with the basic principles of Scripture. So if you think about what, what is comprised of any culture, what, what composes basic foundational elements of any culture, whether you're talking about a Japanese culture, you're talking about a Chinese culture, an Indian culture, or Arab culture, a European culture, what are the foundational elements of a culture? Well, you start with how does this culture view ultimate reality? What is, what, who are the gods or goddesses? What's the ultimate reality that if you go back beyond uh, creation or the origin of this earth, what created it? How did it come into existence? What was there before creation? What was there before evolution? What's the, what is eternal? That's your first, first thing. That's ultimate reality. Is ultimate reality uh, eternal matter? So that everything that comes is basically material. There's no such thing as immaterial or spirit or spiritual. Well, that's Darwinism. And that's, that's evolutionism. So then you have, that, that's pure materialism. What, what was there? Were there these, like in the old Babylonian um, creation epics, that these gods existed and they either had sex or a battle, depending on which way, which version you read, where you either have, they either have sex and that produces 
that produces the universe, or they kill one another, and then they cut up the body parts of, of uh, one of the gods or goddesses, and that becomes the foundation uh, for reality. But anyway, you start with what's ultimate reality. And then that whatever you perceive ultimate reality to be, that then if you're if you're if you're logically consistent, that's going to develop into your view of what, of right or wrong. I mean, if you start with a couple of gods and goddesses and they don't have any uh, absolute ethical system and they're always warring or they're always uh, involved in sex, various sexual activity with multiple partners, what ethic does that lead to? Okay, that's the kind of ethic that produced the fertility religions in the ancient world. It's the same kind of ethic that produced the health and wealth gospel today because the prosperity gospel of today is just another version of the old fertility religion. They just kind of cleaned it up a little bit. Uh, so you, you, have, uh, you have your ultimate reality, and from that ultimately, ultimate reality you derive your value system. Well, philosophy calls ultimate reality metaphysics, and your value system is ethics. Now, then you also have to figure out how you know anything is true, and that's called epistemology. So every system has its ultimate view of reality, its view of what's right or wrong, its value system. If it's postmodernism, then every culture has an equally valid uh, value system, and you have a way of knowing that. And then all of that comes together and produces a cultural view of, of art and beauty music, and that's called aesthetics. And those are the, basically the four branches of philosophy. And so you, once you understand those things, you just take it and you can impose that on anything you read because you go read, uh, you read some, uh, uh, some, some literature. Let's say you read Wordsworth. Well, you ought to say, well, what is he, what's he saying here? Because every writer is saying something. He's got a world view, and that world view includes an ultimate view of reality, a view of values, right or wrong. It has a view of, uh, of uh, knowledge, the ultimate authority of how we know, what we know, and it has a view of, uh, of beauty. Or you read, uh, what's her name, Anne Rice, who writes these uh, fiction books on uh, vampires, although I understand now that she's become converted. She's not going to do that anymore. Of course, she got converted to a Roman Catholic view of Christianity, so that's got another set of problems with it, but um, she's not going to write any more of those awful vampire stories. So see, she's had a change of ethics, personal ethics, which changes what she's going to write in her story. See, authors write from within their own frame of reference or their own world view. Now, what Paul says back here in Colossians 2.7, or 2.8, is don't be deceived through philosophy and empty deceit, which is according to kata plus uh, the accusative, according to the standards of the basic principles of the world, and what? And not according to Christ. Ah, here's our juxtaposition. See, you, it's either this or it's that. It's either the world systems, the world's traditions, the world's philosophies, or it's Christ. There's not an in-between. There's no such thing as neutrality. It's either human viewpoint or it's divine viewpoint. Now, in human viewpoint, there can be a lot of truth there. It's how the truth is structured and how it relates to ultimate things that's important because you think that when you talk, you're talking to an unbeliever and they have their viewpoints, 
that you can agree on a lot of things. But see, there, all these things you think you agree on, you really don't because they're looking at them from within the whole grid of their human viewpoint philosophy, whether it's Marxism or Freudianism or Platonism or Hegelianism. And even though they may get certain things right, there's a lot of stuff that's wrong. And it's not just the details, it's how the details relate to one another. So that's why I say we have to think about these things. Now, let's go back to our text and see what Paul says or what the writer of Hebrews... I keep wanting to identify the writer of Hebrews. He goes on to say, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. See, he just got through saying in verse 12, they, they challenging them, said, You have need for somebody to go back and teach the ABCs of the oracles of God. That's an, another synonym for the revelation of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, some of you are sitting out there going, Man, I'm as lost as I can be. Well, guess what? First time I heard this, I was too. I had to go over it and over it and over it again. And that's how you learn something. But, you know, we have to quit drinking the milk out of the bottle, and we have to go to the fact that there are deeper things that impact our thinking than just the things we're familiar with. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. See, if all you do is take in basic doctrine and things you're familiar with and not build on that and go to places that you're not familiar with, ideas and thoughts and frameworks of thinking that you're not familiar with, you're just a babe unskilled in the word of righteousness. That word translated unskilled is the Greek word uh, apiros, meaning inexperienced, unskilled, ignorant of true doctrine pertaining to the lack of knowledge or the lack of capacity to do something. Let's just uh, translate it with the phrase unacquainted with are unaccustomed to. So everyone who partakes only of milk is unaccustomed to the word of righteousness. We'll have to come back and deal with the exegesis of that later on, for he is a babe. Now let's go to verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. The Greek word there is teleos, meaning mature. Solid food is for the mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That word, it's a bad translation of the New King James. It's not who by reason. It is those who uh, consistently practice something. That's the idea there. It's the Greek word uh, hexis, meaning skill or proficiency, and it has the idea of the repetitive and successful practice of the spiritual skills, part of which is just taking in the Word over and over and over and over again. Even when you don't understand everything that's that's there, you know you just keep coming back, hearing it again, hearing it again. Eventually, things start to click. Things start to make sense. And that's how you grow. It's that consistent practice of learning the Word, learning the Word, hearing it taught, and by that, having your senses exercised. And that word for exercise is the Greek word gymnazo, which is where we get our word gym, gymnastics, uh, gymnasium. All those words come from gymnazo. Its original meaning was to train naked. And that's how they originally uh, 
uh, they originally performed in the Olympics was they didn't have neat little uh, spandex outfits. They went out there just bare butt naked. And in fact, back in the early, when was it, whatever it was, early 20th century, when they were going to resurrect the Olympics, and they sent the, and, and they were, I think they were coming out of Princeton, I may be wrong, but one of the uh, Ivy League schools, they had some athletes, and they, their idea was to bring back the old Olympics. And so they, these, they started sort of a pre-Olympic competition. They started competing, and first time they were competing, they competed at a girls' school. Now, all these athletes were classic scholars. Every one of these, I mean, they were delving into, you know, to Homer and all the class, and they were studying everything that was said about how the ancient Greeks did it, and they came trotting out on the athletic field just bare butt naked. And, of course, you know, all the girls just screamed, and they all ran back in. That was the last time they did it that way. But that's what gumnazo means. And the basic idea is discipline with a removal of all distractions. Anything that hinders you, gets in the way, slows you down, prevents you from performing at maximum efficiency. And, see, that's what I'm talking about. You may think I'm getting the razor blade out and slicing some things pretty thin as we go through this. But the thing is, we have to constantly let the Word of God, let that sharp sword of the Word of God pierce into the depths of our thinking. Remember, it's sharp enough to separate soul and spirit and to surgically remove all those nasty little human viewpoint hangovers that we've got from, uh, the, from the culture and from our upbringing and from our sin nature and everything else. So... It has to do with, Gumnazo has to do with discipline through the removal of distractions and hindrances. So it's in that process of removing these distractions and hindrances that allows us to discern. Discernment isn't some kind of heebie-jeebie word of discernment that the charismatics talk about, like, oh, I've got the spiritual gift of discernment and, and I just have to be in your presence and I know what spiritual gift you have. Well, that's just garbage. That's not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God says discernment comes from the Word of God. It, it, it talks here about the fact that it is through discipline in the process of spiritual growth that as you go to maturity, you're able to distinguish between and evaluate things. See, there's a difference between judging. Jesus talks about judge not that you be not judged. And I've heard, I, I hear these idiot Christians who talk about, they'll, they'll hear some pastor and they say, well, I'm not going to say anything about what he said because that would be judging a pastor. What about all these passages in Scripture that talk about thought and about evaluation and discernment? That's not judging. Judging is saying he's going to go to hell or he's all wrong and judging him personally. You need to evaluate what comes out of a pulpit. How do you evaluate it? Because you build a frame of reference in doctrine you learn to think. And there's nothing wrong with sitting out there and going, you know, I'm having a difficult time with what I heard. Help me understand this a little better. And you hear some pastor say something, you just screw up your face, and you go, well, that just doesn't sound biblical. Well, how do you know? You've got to go back to the text. There has to be an ultimate authority, and that's the Scripture. And so it only comes from feeding on solid food, reaching maturity through the practice, the consistent disciplined practice of, of taking in the Word and discerning both 
uh, good and evil, and you have to learn how to do that. Now, I've given you a couple of examples. Let's see if I have another slide here now. A couple of examples. When we started off last week with the, with the leading of the Spirit, I took a quote out of Charles Ryrie. And I'm trying to teach you a little discernment so that if you read something or hear something, you don't just say, oh, well, that just sounds great and nice. Uh, he's somebody that I'm supposed to respect. Let's go along with what he said. Well, there's not one pastor, teacher, theologian, evangelist who is inerrant or infallible in the church age. Whether they're filled with the Spirit, whether they're in fellowship, that doesn't count. That's not a guarantee of inspiration or infallibility. That's not what that's all about. And yet, there's a lot of people who think that, that, oh, the pastor, he goes and he studies and he's in fellowship and he studies the Word and so God's going to teach this to him. Wait a minute, that sounds kind of mystical to me, doesn't it? Let's clean that up a little bit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's working covertly in the background, like I've been talking about. I've got a... Uh, a program running in the background on my computer right now. It's a virus protector. You don't see it, but it's running back there. And uh, that's how the Holy Spirit works. And the Holy Spirit teaches us in this age, but not all at one time. And as the years go by, it's a gradual process of teaching. It's not that I sit down and read uh, Ephesians uh uh, 4, 7 through 11, and all of a sudden I, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit taught me, told me what this means. You know, next year I may study a little more depth and do more correlation with other passages and go, oops, oh, I didn't catch that last time. Was I out of fellowship? No. I'm learning. I'm growing. And that happens with every one of us. That's, that's the process. So we have to learn a few things about exercising uh, discernment. And part of this is just in reading and understanding things of of, uh, of an apologetic nature. Now, I'm going to go back to that illustration. We talk about uh, we talked about C.S. Lewis, and now I need to go back and find that slide a minute. We're going to go back to what was that? The second slide. Okay, there's our there's our chart. Let's talk about this thing of common ground. Talk a little bit about apologetics and about thought and about how we can avoid a few things. Well, before we get into that, I'll hit C.S. Lewis next time. Let me give you about eight points that we need to think about in terms of what apologetics is all about. Because apologetics is important. Scripture talks about it. It's just simply giving an answer for the hope that is in you. So that when somebody asks you, why are you a Christian that you can give them an answer. Some of you remember this time last year that I got a chance to go down to the hospital bed and sit next to an old friend of mine that I first witnessed two thirty years ago. And uh, after about two or three minutes of small talk, he said, okay, Robbie, why do you believe what you believe? And I sat there and went through a rational defense of the gospel and explanation of the gospel for about three hours. And that was the first of several three-hour sessions because people are not always ready right away to respond to the gospel. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, good reasons, bad reasons, we've all talked to people and they just throw up all these questions like, what about the heathen and, and what, how can a good God let these things happen? And you know all they're doing is throwing up a smoke screen because they're not interested and they don't want to talk about it and they're just using that as a way to, to try to push you away. 
Then there are other people that we talk to, and they ask the same questions, but they're legitimate. They really want to know. They, 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 they've heard these objections. They've raised these objections. They've been concerns for them, and they want to know the answers uh, because they are positive, but they don't want to just park their brain in neutral and accept what you have to say. So when we talk about apologetics, which is part of evangelism, we have to uh, think through some foundational principles. First of all, what is apologetics? First point. Apologetics is the explanation and vindication of the Christian worldview over against the various forms of non-Christian worldviews. We're going to explain, defend, vindicate why Christianity is true and why all any or all of these other views are false. Hinduism, Buddhism, postmodernism, modernism, Darwinism, uh, whatever it is, we're, we're going to show why Christianity is true. So it is making a truth claim. Second point, which I alluded to already, how you conduct your defense, your strategy for conducting that defense, is as important as the content of the defense. It, let's take a football analogy this time. It's not just good enough to have linemen and to have running backs that, that can, can run faster than the other team or a quarterback that can throw uh, farther and more accurately than the other team. You have to have a game plan and a strategy to take all that talent so that you can defeat all that talent on the other side. And that's what I'm talking about is that you just don't go willy-nilly into, although most of us do, uh, willy-nilly into evangelism opportunities, and usually that's what happens. We need to think it through, and we've all done that. We've blown this a thousand times as we practice, but we learn each time you get involved in a discussion with an unbeliever, you learn a little bit, you learn a little bit more. So we're talking about the strategy for utilizing the evidence and how you talk with an unbeliever, because that unbeliever comes to the table with his set of criterion. He's saying, according to my human viewpoint, pagan worldview, this is how I determine truth. And you're coming to the table with the Word of God. Now, are you going to accept his presuppositions about ultimate validation of truth in order to win him to your side of the table? You better not, but the problem is that most of us do, and a lot of apologetics books ultimately utilize that kind of a strategy. So we have to think about it. Third point. The key issue in a defense strategy is not to compromise the reality and the integrity of God and his revelation in the way we approach the subject. We don't want to compromise God's integrity, the, his, the reality of his existence, and his revelation in the process of communicating the message. Since God's the central and ultimate reality of the Christian faith and the highest authority in the universe, then we can't appeal to some higher authority for proof that God's true. And if the Word of God is God's Word, what higher authority can you go to to prove it than God Himself? You can't. 
If you say reason is a or, or logic is our authority for proving the validity of God's word, you've just said there's something higher than God that I can go to for, for to, to validate this. Or you go to history. What you're saying is there's something in history that history is neutral, and my interpretation of history is neutral. And the unbeliever's interpretation of history is just as good as my interpretation of history. Wait a minute. Isn't his interpretation clouded by the fact that he's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness? Romans 1.19? Sure it is. So he's distorting the facts. Of course, that's another issue. What is a fact? And how you define what a fact is. So if God is the ultimate reality of Christianity and the highest authority in the universe, then we can't appeal to some higher authority for proof of either his existence or the veracity of his word. And if you start appealing to something else as, the, as that which ultimately proves God's existence, oh, I have a rational argument for the existence of God. Wait a minute. You're saying that reason now proves God. So is reason, does reason exist autonomously and independently from the omniscience of God? No, it doesn't. It is God's, God's thinking that defines reality. So we, we have to be careful because it's easy to start answering the questions. I, I always I, Charlie was the first one to teach me this. You can't answer a fool according to his folly. That's what Proverbs says. They, start, they ask a question, and the way they phrase the question, you jump in there and start answering it too quickly. The way they ask the question predetermines where the conversation is going to go. Next thing you know, you're in trouble. It's the old question of have you quit beating your wife yet? However you answer the question, you're in trouble. Okay, fourth point. Since in, in the interchange, in the conversation with the unbeliever, the issue is how do you know what's right and true in a field of competing religious claims and philosophical positions, you have to be careful. How are you going to determine truth? What's your criterion for determining truth? I mean, there's true with a small t and there's true with a capital T. How do you determine truth? What is, the, what is that umbrella up there? That's the ultimate umbrella beyond which there's nothing. Is it God or is it logic or reason or empiricism or mysticism? How you feel? How do you know it's true? Well, it resonated with me. I heard a pastor teach on this subject and I just knew it was right. Did you look at the scripture? Did you exegete the passages? Did you go look at what he said? No. Then you can't rely on your inner heebie-jeebie liver quiver to figure out that it's right. You've got to look at the text. And I've seen so many people come along and they say, well, there's this doctrine. I've always heard this doctrine taught and it just it fits my experience. Oh, you have, you've suddenly become experiential now. You're just as bad as any human viewpoint pagan out there. Revelation isn't your ultimate authority. Because you didn't say do the passages that this person cited support his, what he's saying. That's not easy to do. I mean, it, it, it's hard to do for me. It's harder for you. I remember when I was going through Dallas Seminary, and still, you know, you're a seminarian, you're trying to figure all this stuff out. You know generally what's right, but you're trying to figure out all the details. And we had to take a course in pastoral psychology and counseling. Boy, that was fun. With Frank Meyer and, uh, what's his name, Minrith. I can't remember his first name. They've really gone on to be famous. You know, you can go to a Minrith Meyer Clinic, 
I think they have one here in Houston. There's one in Little Rock. There's one in Austin, one in Dallas. They're all over the country. Everybody just falls in love with them because... Because uh, Minerth and Meyer are, are Christians, and they taught at Dallas Seminary, and they must be right, right? Yeah, these guys' biblical training was a navigator discipleship course. They they were the, the, all they did was they went through. Uh, they had all their human viewpoint psychology that they just uh, sort of rewrapped in Christian terminology and patched a bunch of Bible verses on there. But if you started going through there and exegeting every one of those proof texts in light of the context and the original language, it wouldn't document 80% of what they said. Oh, but a lot of Christians, just because it's got a Bible verse there, it must be right. That must be what the text says. These guys didn't know Greek from Latin. When we have truth claims, the ultimate authority is the Word of God, and we can't compromise by something else. Point number five. God is all-powerful. He's an omnipotent God. He is the God who spoke into reality the creation that we see and everything in it, including the way we think, the way we categorize. Everything about our mentality, God created. And He created it the way He did so that He could communicate to it. He created us in such a way that he could communicate to us. Furthermore, because God is the one who created everything the way it is, things are what they are because God made them that way. A tree isn't a tree because we've gone out and this is a product of chance or it just happens to grow this way or, 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 or trees function in a certain way because, well, that's just the way it is. They function that way because God made them that way. A tree is a tree because God said this is a tree, and this is how a tree is going to function, this is how a tree is going to operate, and I'm going to set the boundaries called kinds in Genesis 1 so that when you talk and you talk about a tree, everybody's going to know that you're talking about a tree and not a dog. So your very language presupposes those absolute kinds that the Scripture talks about. Well, God is the omnipotent. He created... Uh, the creation, things are what they are because he says so. Morals are what they are. Right and wrong is what it is because of God's character and God's revelation, not because of consensus, not because of culture. Okay, i got three more points to make. They're going to go faster now. God is omnipotent, and because he's the absolute creator and possesses all authority... His authority is self-attesting. When God speaks, people know it's God. It contains an inherent authority. And God made us, remember, He made us in such a way so that that brain receptor that we have knows truth, capital T, truth from God when it hears it. The trouble is after Genesis 3, carnality gets in the way clouds up the way men think, and on top of that, in negative volition, they want to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I told you I could go to midnight. Just hang in there. Um, Point seven. The character of his revelation, what he speaks, therefore, uh, affirms this starting point that the recognition of God contains a self-attesting verification. We know it. We're made that way. 
we're going to know it. To suggest that there's another authority that we can go to to validate God puts man in the non-biblical position of being the truth determiner. This is what Eve did. The serpent came along and said, God said, if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. Is that true? Ooh, all of a sudden she had to judge God. How is she going to do it? Experience? Rationalism? Ah, I'm going to do it by experience. Let me eat it. What happened? Well, everything dominoed from there. See, she put herself first and foremost in a position to judge God by a, an independent higher authority. Point eight. I'll review these again next time. This is slow going, but you're going to make it. As Christians, we begin with the assumption, and we must begin with the assumption, that God's Word is the final authority, and therefore it is God's Word that stands in judgment of all other philosophical positions and religious claims. Everything has to come under the authority of God's Word. Now, the practical reality of all this, I'm, I'm, giving, I'm helping you think through the thought methodology, the intellectual background of this, it is really beneficial. We talked about this, I think, last time in terms of evangelism because it gives you greater confidence in starting with the Word of God and knowing that this is what God's Word says and not having to figure out. It's nice to know, and sometimes it's helpful to know, what, what uh, everybody else believes, what the Muslims believe and what the Jews believe and all of this. It, it's helpful, but... We know that they already know God exists, and that's the key. So, the ninth point. Ultimately, the problem of man is not rational. See, when you appeal to some rational point, what are you saying? You're saying that the reason you're not buying the gospel is because you just got a cog loose in your logic machine, and if I can just point out to you how to straighten out your logic machine, then you'll, you'll trust Christ. See, if you're appealing to history or to empiricism, what you're basically saying is you're just missing the right piece of data from history or experience, and if I can plug that in so you understand that Christ rose from the dead, then you'll believe in Christ. Because the problem, the only reason you don't believe in Christ is because you just don't have the right piece of data or you don't have the right kind of logic. But what the Bible says is the reason you're not believing in Christ is because you're a sinner. You're fallen. The problem isn't rational. The problem isn't experiential. The problem is a spiritual problem. You are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You already know that God exists, Romans 1, 18 and 19. You're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You already know the truth. It's not that you're missing data. You don't like the data. What, I'm, what our job is, is to present the data without compromising it in the, in the process. That doesn't mean they'll accept it, but we have to make sure that we do the right thing the right way. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit who cuts through all of this. Now, that's just a build-up. Now I want to talk about C.S. Lewis. See, I told you we would run out of time. Because we need to look at this in a little more detail. So those of you who haven't seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you can go watch it. Then what I say next week might make a little more sense. But since a whole week's going to go by, and this isn't the kind of stuff you all are thinking about every day, I'm going to have to review about 90% of what I covered tonight so we can get us right back to this point, and then we'll get into it. But I'll do it a lot faster because it won't be as new and as fresh. This is great stuff. 
I just love it. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us real perspicacity and discernment in issues. But we have to learn to think biblically and to think uh, consistently about every issue in life from your vantage point. Father, above all, we thank you for your grace. Your grace has provided for us a perfect salvation based not on who we are but on who Jesus Christ is and that your grace has provided us with a unique spiritual life. And you've given us your word and the Holy Spirit to help us understand your word. And even though there are things that are a little bit difficult to fully comprehend and understand, we know that as we go through them again and again that the Holy Spirit will help us understand them and they will become clear to us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.